Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We've had a lot of shows over the last few months about the current president of the United States, Donald Trump. We've had his biographer, Tim O'Brien. We've had critics from the right, like Pete Weiner, critics from the left, many critics from the left. And we've even had supporters like uh, Victor Hansen. Uh, and I think it's getting a little boring. We, 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 we know perhaps too much now about Donald Trump, about his narcissistic, psychotic uh, mind, his mentality, his self-involvement, and so on and so forth. What we haven't done, though, I think, on the show, which has been a bit lacking, is talk about the court of President Trump, about the people surrounding him. We even did a show on Mar-a-Lago, his building. Um, and there's a really interesting new book out on Stephen Miller, one of Trump's most faithful acolytes, supporters, um, uh, by Jean Guerrero. Uh, she's a San Diego-based journalist. Uh, the book is called Hate Monger. Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda. And I've just finished it, and it's a really bracing, troubling read about Miller. Uh, Gene, to kick off, how would you, in your research on Miller, how would you summarize him as, as a human being? That's a great question. I mean, I think what's important to start out with is the fact that Stephen Miller is the most powerful advisor in the White House right now. You know, he's the longest lasting advisor uh, outside of the president's family. He's been able to outlast, you know, these stalwarts that were painted as being crucial to Trumpism, like Steve Bannon, you know, his former boss, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Steve Miller, Stephen Miller has truly been the only person who has understood Trump so, you know, on such a deep level. He understands Trump uh, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally and is able to have an outsized influence because of that, you know, that deep understanding that he has of Trump and just what he brings to the table as far as his knowledge of immigration. This is a subject that he's been obsessed with his, his, pretty much his entire life since he was a teenager, you know, uh, in high school, you know, uh, arguing against measures to improve racial equity, attacking bilingual education, um, but throughout his life just becoming very well-versed in the immigration system of the United States and trying to find ways, which he has done under the Trump administration, of completely uh, undermining it and, and, and transforming it into something that we haven't seen since you know, the early 20th century, really uh, obliterating the asylum system at the US-Mexico border, slashing refugee admissions to historic lows, suspending green card access, really targeting people who have broken no laws with the exception in some cases being the misdemeanor of illegal entry. So I, th I think, you know, Stephen Miller overall, he represents Trump's harshest 
and, and, and I believe most ingrained impulses towards, towards immigrants. Not, not so much about keeping out criminals and cartels, but keeping out the most desperate uh, and the most vulnerable people. Right. And you write at the beginning of the book, uh, it's impossible to understand the Trump era with its unparalleled polarization without tracing Miller's journey to the White House. But it's interesting, um, Gene, that you didn't really answer my question about who this guy is. And, and, and your book tries to make sense of him. Perhaps he's the kind of character who has no core, who has no real identity. Um, what kind of fellow is he? I mean, he comes across as someone so creepy, so troubling, not only in terms of his ideology, but in his personification. It, one of the things that I really got out of your book, which was particularly in intriguing, was his obsession with fiction. You suggest that the fact that he grew up in L.A., um, that he's always loved Scorsese-style gangster movies, um, mm -hmm. fueled his sense of the self, or perhaps more, uh, more exactly, his lack of the self. Is there a self when it comes to Steve, uh, when, when it comes to Miller, or is he just a guy living out a Hollywood fantasy? That's a really great question. I mean, I think that there's always this desire to want to see a, a level of coherence in, you know, the people that we read about. And I, I you know, I think it's, all, it's important to recognize, though, that, that you know, in, in most cases, and especially in the case of Stephen Miller, there are a lot of contradictions there and isn't, there isn't that much coherence. Um, I, think, I think it's b both of the things that you said are true. I mean, Stephen Miller from a, a very young age, you know, it was was very um, inspired by these rigid notions of masculinity. Um, you know, according to my conversations with his family members and people who knew him at the time, was was really sort of trying to act out and and uh, and and get his his father's attention. His father being someone who was described to me as very similar to Donald Trump, a real estate investor who was tangled up in numerous legal disputes and numerous bankruptcies and who at um, one I have point- I to throw in here, uh, his, I didn't know much about his father from your book, but he also went to Stanford Law School. So exactly. as, a, as a Berkeley person, it's, it's one more argument against Stanford and Stanford Law School, but- <laughs> Well, his father, he was described to me as being very combative. You know, court, court documents describe him as a masterpiece of evasion and manipulation. And, yeah. you know, Stephen Miller, um, you know, he, he's really a, a product of his, of his family life, um, men, in, in which there are many parallels with, with the Trump family life, you know, the Trump's niece getting pushed out of a, a majority of the family inheritance in the same way that Stephen Miller's uncle, his father's brother, was pushed out of a majority of the family inheritance. So, I mean, there, there's, it depends on how you want to look at Stephen Miller. I mean, there's, there's, there's the family side of it. There's, you know, the movie. Is he just he in awe, though? And, and this comes back to perhaps um, uh, Ivanka's husband, Jared. Um, Trump seems to be comfortable surrounded by boys who uh, were themselves dominated by criminal fathers. Is that fair? Well, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable calling Stephen Miller's father a criminal, but I, I do I did. think... You, you, I can say it. You, you don't have to. But uh, <laughs> certainly a, a guy who has been dogged by all sorts of legal and, and financial right. controversies. Yeah. And yeah, nasty this... family stories like, like uh, uh, Jared's father as well. 
Yes, yeah, Stephen. I mean, Donald Trump. He he likes to surround himself with with men who 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 grew up with men who are very similar to him in, in ways, and and it's one of the reasons that Stephen Miller gets along so well with Trump. He he he's, he grew up with a man who is very similar to him. But another key aspect of who, like you know, who is Stephen Miller? It goes back to he is. A, a, a case study in radicalization and indoctrination. At a very young age, he met uh, David Horowitz, a former Marxist who has written a lot of books that Stephen Miller read as a teenager about how the entire Democratic Party poses an existential threat to America because of their allyship with Muslims and other people who Horowitz describes as enemies and always happen to be people of color. So, you know, at a difficult time in his life, when, when Stephen Miller's life was sort of spiraling out of control, he was looking for somebody to blame. He was looking for a sense of purpose in his life. David Horowitz came in and provided him with that, with that, with a framework to, to understand what was going on in his life and also a sort of mission to, to save the United States from this, this onslaught uh, that was represented in, in Horowitz's books by the Democratic Party and their, you know, their non-white allies. Yeah, and, and, and your book does a wonderful job um, acting out, so to speak, um, um, Miller's, Miller's manifestation of, of Horowitzian propaganda, both at Santa Monica High. I'm not sure, I, don't, I can't remember exactly when he met Horowitz. I think it was when he was yeah, at Santa Monica High. high. And then at Duke, where he participated in all these racial and, and racist controversies and sort of uh, built a career around essentially racism or public racism. Exactly. You know, one of the first things that he did at Duke University was protest this Palestine Solidarity Movement conference with the help of David Horowitz, who has, you know, repeatedly denied Palestinians a right to a national identity. He recently tweeted, there is no Palestine, there are no Palestinians. And he recruited Stephen Miller to head his, quote, terrorism awareness project, which was essentially just a project focused on conflating Arabs and Muslims with terrorists uh, through websites and through various uh, school events across the country. And, you know, Stephen Miller, he graduates without a job. People see him as sort of a pariah, a fringe figure. He's defensive to people, but no one really sees him as capable of doing that much harm, despite the national attention that he was getting on Fox News uh, during the racial controversies that he was drawn to at Duke. And it isn't until David Horowitz introduces him to numerous people in Congress, you know, starting with uh, Minnesota Con Tea Party Congresswoman uh, Michelle Bachman, eventually with John Shadag of Arizona, and finally with Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions, that, you know, Stephen Miller starts to climb the ladder of power. And it's all, all happening through David Horowitz, who, you know, the entire time is in correspondence with him. They're meeting regularly. Stephen Miller is going to his, you know, restoration weekends and West Coast retreats that unite different conservative figures to incubate for uh, conservative thought. And one of the things that, you know, people don't understand y yet is, is what what a direct influence that David Horowitz played on, on shaping the Trump campaign and the Trump's policies through Stephen Miller. I mean, David Horowitz was feeding explosive talking points to Stephen Miller throughout the campaign that you would then see Trump regurgitating verbatim, you know, like radical Islam and comparing mm -hmm. inner cities to, to war zones. 
Yeah, I, I buy that. But um, your book is not about Horowitz. It's about Miller. And one of the things that strikes me about the narrative you present is the, the sort of the Shakespearean quality of, 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 of Miller essentially trampling over dead bodies. Uh, first uh, Bannon, well, first Sessions and then Bannon and surviving. So uh, I, I'm sure he would happily um, sacrifice Horowitz if he needed to. It's just that Horowitz now is, is, is a minor ideological footnote, I think, to the Trump regime, whereas Miller has trod his way above all these dead bodies to the top. Um, how powerful now, uh, uh, Gene, is uh, Miller? You said at the beginning of this conversation that you see him as the most powerful figure still standing within the administration outside Donald Trump himself. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways that Stephen Miller was able to retain this power is unlike Bannon um, and a unlike a lot of other figures in the Trump administration who were very obsessed with media attention and sort of self-mythologizing through journalists, Stephen Miller has always been very careful about the media attention that, that he gets and trying to always cast himself as the devoted vehicle for Trump's agenda. Um, and, and because of that st strategic, you know, approach to his position in the West Wing, Stephen Miller has really, in, you know, become a, the most trusted advisor of Donald Trump. If you look at what Trump is saying, you know, it, this summer, you know, uh, describing anti-racist protesters in, in Portland and uh, as agitators and anarchists and talking about an unhinged left-wing mob and talking about far-left fascism, really ramping up the demonization of his political opponents. That is Stephen Miller and Stephen Miller's influence, always pushing Trump towards, uh, you know, as, as aggressive of a stance as, as possible. So, I mean, I really see Stephen Miller as being not, his story is not just about immigration. You know, he, he's affecting your life, whether you care about immigration or not, because Stephen Miller is really behind Trump's most incendiary rhetoric and the way that he characterizes, um, you know, his political opponents as, as evil and as, as, as agitators and anarchists. And it's, it's, you know, the reason that Trump is leaning more and more on Miller is because the, he, he's, he's, he's really skilled at creating distractions through demonization, which is something that he's been doing deliberately and consciously when you look at, you know, some of the, uh, you know, the strategy, a strategy paper that I obtained where David Horowitz tells him to purposely, you know, remake the Republican Party through demonization. Um, it's a very effective strategy of, of distraction and, and allows Trump to, you know, get, get people talking about anything else besides his disastrous response to the coronavirus crisis. Uh, Gene, uh, I don't want to bring up the Hitler analogies too much because they're always overdone. But you do mention Hitler in the book. You compare some of what Trump is doing in the press to Hitler. Uh, and when I was reading about uh, Miller, uh, Goebbels always comes to mind. Are there historical precedents for the role of a guy like Steve Miller, particularly in his hate mongering, in his obsessive uh, hatred of, of black and brown people? Um, and, and that, of course, would be particularly ironic and tragic, given the fact that uh, Miller himself is, is of Jewish origins. Right. 
Well, there is a, a noteworthy parallel with, you know, the, the Nazi strategy of demonization and, and, you know, Miller's strategy of demonization. One of the first things that Stephen Miller did in the White House was create an office dedicated to the daily demonization of migrants issuing regular press releases about the crimes of migrants and, uh, you know, trying to feature scary looking pictures of, of migrants. He specifically asked that people put out pictures of their tattoos. So, so really just trying to create hostility around immigrants in the same way that the Nazis did with, with propaganda, really, really centered on, on creating hostility. Um, and when you look at, at, at the resources that Stephen Miller is pulling from, these are white nationalist and white supremacist li uh, literature and, and ideas that he's, he's directly pulling from. You know, he, he first started thinking about immigration at Duke University when, uh, you know, right. I mean, you, you note in the book that he, he came across Richard Spencer, the American Nazi, essentially, at Duke, and maybe they had some political distance, but they share a basic ideology, it seems. Yeah, and enough of an ideology that they both worked together to invite Peter Brimlow, you know, the white nationalist who created the white nationalist website, V-Dare, uh, to to speak at Duke University, and you now see Stephen Miller echoing a lot of the ideas from his from uh, Peter Brimlow's book, Alien Nation, when he's up, you know, at the podium during during giving press briefings about the need to stop all, you know, to, to reduce legal immigration. Um, it, it's it's because of demographic fears. You know, Trump likes to paint this as a national security issue, as a law and order issue. But when you look at the man who he's relying on to craft immigration policy, it's about demographics. It's about making sure that this country stays a predominantly white country. And, and this goes back to Stephen Miller's childhood, uh, you know, growing up at a time in California when uh, whites became a minority for the first time in the 90s in California. And there was a lot of white fear and, and backlash associated with migrants and how they were going to allegedly turn the state into this sort of third world but, state. Yeah, I, I accept that to some extent, Gene. But look, I live in Berkeley. I'm not Californian, but I've lived here for 30 years. I, I don't worry about immigration. I don't think you can blame this entirely on, on California. And, and Miller has always been on a real fringe. I mean, how many people in California, how many, you know, rich white Jewish boys share this kind of overt racist ideology in, in LA, in Santa Barbara, in Santa Monica. I mean, he's a very rare figure, someone clearly so inadequate on so many levels that he brings it out in his hostility to outsiders. Well, that's why I see him as a, as a case of indoctrination, because, you know, a lot of us grew up in California during this period of hostility towards immigrants, um, and, and we didn't turn out like Stephen Miller. Um, but I remember, you know, growing up in California and, and internalizing a lot of that white supremacy as, as a Mexican-American and Puerto Rican uh, woman. Like, as a, as a child, I remember, you know, there was this shame associated with being Mexican. The, the, the difference is, is that, you know, Stephen Miller never, never grew out of that, of that, you know, a negative association about with, you know, with, with the other. He sounds the same today as he did when he was 16. And, and that's, you know, in part, and that's pretty bad, given how absurd he sounded at 16, right? Yeah, I mean, he's obsessed with the same, <laughs> he uses the same language, you know, heinous, using that word heinous, which he got from Rush Limbaugh, who he was very right. into listening, just a lot, the exact same words and, and ideas. 
Gene, there's something, and I'm laughing. I mean, it's not particularly funny given how much power Miller has, but there is something comical about this. Uh, I mean, he could have almost been invented in a, in a Monty Python skit. Um, let's say that Trump gets defeated in November, which it seems as if hopefully he will be. How are we going to remember Miller as this absurd clownish figure who had some influence on, a, on an absurd clownish administration. Has he left a legacy? Will he leave a legacy? Well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen with Stephen Miller. I think he's always going to have allies in the white nationalist and nativist movement. The question is whether that movement is going to be relegated to the fringes come November. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think, I, I hope that people don't remember him as you know, as as being some kind of fringe figure, because the fact is that the, the reason that Trump won in 2016 is because Stephen Miller was able to communicate what a lot of voters uh, wanted and to to Trump and 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 to you know harness white rage and white fear against you know in in order to help Trump win. So, so even though he was a fringe figure throughout his life, you know, in Santa Monica and then in Congress, when the Republican Party was moving towards a more moderate direction, he was pushing it in the complete opposite direction. He, he really he did represent a, 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 you know, a portion of the American community. And I think it's important not to scapegoat him as being a total freak who, you know, we can't possibly understand where he came from, because then you never really resolve the root issues here, which is, you know, the reason that Trump was able to come to power in 2016 was it was in large part because migrants had been demonized by both political parties for decades. Uh, and this is a bipartisan assault on immigration that Miller was able to take into a very extreme and cruel direction um but it's it's i, I believe that it's going to happen again if we if we don't uh, if we don't understand the full story and where it comes from which is what i try to do in the book yeah you do a great job and i think that's a really good response to my point about the absurdity of miller for all his absurdism for all his comical qualities they're not qualities for all his for, for all the comical pieces of his identity you're absolutely right. Um, he isn't really a fringe figure. He represents some sort of consensus on the right. And second, and your book does a very good job on this too, his policies have resulted in enormous human suffering. So we always need to remember that. This is not just late night, this is not, this is not stuff for late night comedians. You know, Miller is an absurd figure, but his behavior and policies has resulted in terrible human suffering. Yeah, people like to call Miller a troll. And in one sense, that's true, because he does like to do things that trigger outrage in his political opponents. But on the other sense, it, it's, it's not really accurate to call him a troll, because, you know, tro trolls don't necessarily do this kind of harm to great numbers of people the way that we see Stephen Miller doing to refugees and asylum seekers in the, through the systematic separation of, of children from their parents. Well, Gene, I want to thank you for this book, uh, Hate Monger. It's an important book, uh, and it talks about the hate mongering of American society through, through this awful character, Stephen Miller. Uh, what else are you reading? You're stuck in, uh, in San Diego during the, uh, the lockdown. Uh, what else are you reading or should people be reading in this weird summer of 2020? <laughs> so I, I just finished Too Much and Never Enough by Mary Trump, which I think that is a, hmm. is a good companion book uh, for yeah. 
hate monger because of the very eerie, eerie parallels between, you know, the origins of Trump and, and the Trump family and, and Miller's family it gives, and it could really give readers a better understanding of how these two figures have been able to work together so effectively to do so much damage um, and, 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 you know, just, just the reasons for that. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.